When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 135 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, author and podcast host, Martin Popoff, I wanted to just say a quick Happy New Year and thank you. The Mistress Carrie podcast grew so much in 2022 and we couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much for liking the episodes and commenting and sharing. Thank you for all of the five-star reviews and for all of the amazing comments on social media. And a huge thank you to all of my guests who took time out of their busy and successful careers to sit down and answer my sometimes ridiculous questions. 2022 was a year of growth and we've got so many plans for 2023. And to kick it off, my first guest of the year, author and podcast host Martin Popoff, knows a thing or two about music. Martin has written over 115 books on hard rock, heavy metal, prog rock, punk, and record collecting. He's also worked with Banger Films, and he's the host of History and Five Songs, the podcast that you can find with the Mistress Carrie podcast as part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Martin and I sat down to talk about his new book, Pink Floyd and the Dark Side of the Moon, 50 Years. But we also ended up talking about his upbringing, his writing process, his musical background, and our ideas and opinions on what makes a great song, what makes a great artist, and what makes a legendary album. Martin is such a knowledgeable guy when it comes to all things rock. And if you're a Pink Floyd lover and you want to take a deep dive into Dark Side of the Moon, his new book is a must-get. It'll be available on Valentine's Day, and you can pre-order it right now. So, allow me to introduce you to the one and only Martin Popoff. Hey, 
what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stained, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mistress Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to you have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Well, hello, Mr. Popoff. Yes. Hi, Mistress Carrie. How are you doing today? Fellow Pantheon <laughs> Podcast Network member. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to see you. Happy New Year. Yes, you too. You're you my too. first episode of the new year, so I'm starting Excellent. the new year off on a massive foot. So thank you good for doing this. Yeah, well, good good company. You've interviewed a lot of pretty uh, pretty heavy hitters. So I I have, as have you. Yeah. I yeah. I've done a lot of interviews over my radio and podcasting career, but when I started doing a deep dive into your career, do you know exactly how many books you've written? Well, I've been saying 115 for a few months now, so it's at least that, if not a few more now. So you don't literally have an answer for how many books you have written. Well, it's kind of vague, right? Some don't need a lot of writing. Some are updates of older books. Some are, you know, some are I took an old book and split it into two. So there's there's no way of knowing the right number. So it's <laughs> unbelievable when I I mean, obviously, I I know you most recently because of your podcast, because we're in the same podcast network. But when I started looking into your career, people have told me for years that I need to write a book about my career, about my life story. And the idea of starting a book seems like the most arduous of tasks. And everyone that I've interviewed, most recently Geezer Butler, from Black Sabbath, and I always say, like, how do you get past the first blank page? You've done that over 115 times. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a very, very easy way to do it. Lay out a bunch of chapters, put everything kind of in order and, and get that framework done. Put it in like 24 point type and then and then just start filling in the gaps. That's that's one way to do it. When you're writing, say, a biography of a band or whatever, like if you've got interviews and you've got quotes and then you just start grabbing stuff and throwing it in place, you know, and uh, and that way you can kind of build the thing up. And it's that whole concept of like break it into bite sized chunks. Yeah. Eat the elephant one bite at a time, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. Well, can we talk about before we get to your new book? Um, can we talk a little bit about your, um, your backstory? Um, you're Canadian, obviously. And, uh, so, you know, hello up there. How is your winter going? You guys all right so far? <laughs> 
Pretty good. Yeah, my parents out west are really getting hit with it. It's uh, it's minus minus eighteen Celsius right now with a couple of feet of snow. So uh, no, we we haven't had much at all. So it's. Can you do that conversion for the stupid American over here? Do, do you know what well, that is in see. Fahrenheit? If, if, if thirty-two is zero in Fahrenheit, so it's it's probably in the region of uh, you know m- minus ten or minus twenty. That's completely like that. unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you grew up in Canada. Was music always around in the house growing up? Yeah. So, I mean, it was Trail, B.C. So it was a small town in the West, uh, just directly two hours north of Spokane, Washington. So that's where we'd go buy our records or Vancouver. Um, Vancouver was eight hours away. Um, But uh, but no, not not particularly from the parents, but but, you know, an older brother of a buddy and some older cousins. But I mean, I was heavy, heavy into it by nine, ten years old. So, you know, that would have been. 1971 72 and then by 73 74 me and a couple buddies were were crazy experts right had the circus uh subscription and buying cream and hit parader and just you know by 1976 and the kiss army and all that um you know well well on the way at that point and then the new wave of british heavy metal hits and there's suddenly all sorts of great heavy music we were just absolutely mathematically it had to be heavy right as kids um but at that point, you know, you're getting imports and you're getting Sounds Magazine and Kerrang! And then MTV starts up. And uh, and yeah, you know, and never never really did anything business wise or, or, you know, to be part of it other than just being a crazy fan up until about 1993. And at that point, so I'm 30 at that point um, and uh, wrote wrote my first book. It was a, a book of uh, record reviews called Riff Kills Man, 25 years recorded hard rock and heavy metal self-published you know, 1942 heavy metal record reviews. That thing got reissued um, through a publisher and expanded. And then that eventually got broken into, you know, four different decades. But a big time is 1994. So moved to Toronto, uh, got involved with Tim Henderson, who was starting his heavy metal magazine, Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles. And that's when, you know, the floodgates opened, started interviewing bands constantly and getting all those free CDs and (laughs) and writing reviews and liner notes and bios and all that. So 94 to 2000 was doing that part time while doing my other job. And then 2000, I went full time. So when you when you were growing up and you're you're just loving music and you just have this appetite for the magazines, the albums, the imports, all of that kind of stuff. Are you a musician? Can you play instruments at all? Are you musically inclined? Because I can talk music, but I have no musical ability whatsoever. Yeah. Well, as far as I went was uh, was in a bar band for one summer. I was a drummer. Um, so I, I took a lot of drum lessons and I was a drummer and had drums all the time. And so, yeah, we had one bar band once. We were called Torque. Um, but that's it. And then jammed with buddies and had garage situations and stuff, but always had a bass guitar, keyboards around, plunk away at all that stuff as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a drummer, a hack drummer. So what did you go to school for? What was your major in college? I did a BA in English and then I did an MBA. Um, so that would have been 81 to like 85, 85, 86, 87. Got out of that, worked for Xerox quit Xerox after two, two years, three years, had a, was a sort of self-employed entrepreneur with a buddy. And we had one employee and we were a print broker, desktop publishing company. So basically running around all the office towers of Toronto, trying to sell printing jobs uh, to, to people. It's, it's funny. I look at every single job I've had and they're all obsolete, right? So I, I sold typewriters, 
<laughs> fax machines, photocopiers. I worked in a record store. Um, you know, I sold TVs. I sold car stereos. They're obsolete. You don't buy car stereos, you know, from a stereo store anymore. Um, I, I wrote I wrote for magazines. I write about heavy metal. So every, you know, and now I do books who, which have been around for hundreds of years. So it's funny. It's like literally every job I've had is has been, you know, they've, they've been telling us that uh, it won't it won't exist one day. <laughs> well, luckily, the record stores are having a resurgence because of this newfound love of vinyl again, which I'm so excited about. Yeah, there is that. And then maybe even CDs will come back at some point. But physical, I mean, I'm, I'm having a lot of people telling me now who love buying CDs and love buying physical that they're really now starting to get, you know, there's this new challenge in the last 12 months of even being able to find the CDs of bands you want to buy. So so it it could actually happen where they even really absolutely stop even on the CDs, right? But yeah, the vinyl, you've got the reissue vinyl, but uh, it's it's really funny how uh, the old vinyl, I mean, most of that, which, uh, it, you know, 90% of the bands on old vinyl go for like under seven or eight bucks, but reissue vinyl is like 35, 40 bucks. And then the original vinyl by only the bands that have been allowed to live, which is probably under 50 bands are expensive, right? So it's it's still it's still the the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of records floating around out there that nobody wants, right? Yeah. And now you know newer bands are are printing a certain amount of limited picture discs, colored vinyl, all of that stuff, but they're also making cassettes again, which I talked yeah. to a lot of bands about and I'm like Yeah. Really? It's like a collectible thing and I've said this anybody that listens to the podcast a lot I've said this, no band has taken me up on it, that if they're going to sell cassettes, they need to sell a logoed pencil with the cassette. Yeah. And only <laughs> yeah. people that grew up listening to cassettes know why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody's done it yet. It's got to be the right the right width too, right? Just yeah, to, just to get in there perfectly size. and start turning it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so when you when you sit down and you and you go, okay, I want to write a book. Do you make the decision to write a book and then choose the topic or does the topic choose you? How does that work? Because you've done it over 115 times. Yeah, well, I mean, generally, the the main normal reason to write a book is because I love the band and I have now interviewed the band 15, 20, 25 times, right? So once I have a whole pile of my own interview stuff, I think, okay, now I have a reason to put it out there. I have fresh material that's my own um, to put in that. But quite often, there's been a lot of books uh, lately and a lot of concepts like with with um, Cordo books, you know, Voyager motor books, you know, the name kind of keeps changing. But some of those concepts that I've done books for then have had have come from them and including this new Pink Floyd book, which is a concept of theirs. So there are a bunch of bands. Thanks to Cordo. There are a bunch of bands that I've been able to write books on that I never would have written a book on David Bowie, Queen. Pink Floyd, uh, ACDC, even I haven't done a lot of interviews with. So, but, but then there's all those, you know, all the heavy metal dad rock, classic rock bands that I've written tons of books on that are because I have had a lot of interviews, but it's, it's kind of cool that there have been these other concepts that have come up that have allowed me to write books on bands that I've never interviewed before. I mean, obviously, if you're going to write a book on Queen, if you're going to write a book on ACDC and you don't have a lot of your own original interview content to work from, there's almost unlimited Googling. 
right? That yes. there's all of this yeah. source material. But when you're, if you're going to write a book about those bands, you've got to be able to vet it all, right? So what is that process for you if you're yes. not going back to your own interviews? How does that work? Well, let, let me say this as well. When I said I could write books on all those bands, I would refuse to write a book on any of those bands if they were to be, if someone said, we want you to make it like a normal book with a lot of quotes, because I won't write a book where 70, 60, 50% of the quotes are not mine. So these concepts that I've talked about that I've been able to do that are absolutely um, no quote books. That's why they've been they've been easy to do. But yes, you, you still have to. But now there are other things, right? Like the David Bowie is called Bowie at 75. And the concept from Dennis, my publisher over there, who's awesome and he knows book, he knows music and they do all the images and stuff. But that was their concept. And they've done I don't know how many, four or five of these. Um, and I've done some other ones as well that aren't out yet. But the idea there was simply go away and come up with 75 David Bowie career highlights or milestones and write about them. Here's your word count. Do the math. Um, you know, I think it worked out to six, seven hundred words each. So, yeah, I've got to go. I've got to go read a bunch of Bowie books and I've got to look on, on the net and do all that endless Googling and compare things. And then when stories don't match, I have to kind of make a judgment call, which one I believe uh, and all that stuff and find stats. So, yeah, there's a lot of research that way. But um, but, yeah, it's it's really cool to be. You know, I've been doing these ones. First, I did a bunch for them. And now I'm doing some for my UK publisher where I'm simply going and interviewing a bunch of experts of bands and doing a and a on every studio album. So it's like, again, it's it's not my stuff. I'm just I'm like the moderator of this book. So, uh, you know, there's part of your answer. Those ones I include in books that I've written, but I, but I'm, I'm not the main speaker in those. I'm I'm like just basically, you know, herding all these cats and putting it all in order and writing intros and things like that. So, yeah, there's a, a ton of different ways to do these things. It blows my mind that someone let's use David Bowie as an example. He's not even with us anymore that you could be so famous and have such a career and a legacy and a body of work that total strangers that you've never even met are writing books about you. <laughs> and, yeah, and well, you're, I mean, that's how it you're works not for involved all. in the process. It's just. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it is it's you know, that's almost a, a different question. Like the it, it is weird to have. Yeah, a total stranger write books on you, right? Yeah, that's um, you what know, I'm talking about. Yeah, he's not with us anymore, but he's had many, many books written on him while while he was alive as well. Yeah, it, it is it is very bizarre, right? Have you uh, gotten feedback from the artist that you've written about uh, that's been good and or bad? Has your phone ever rung all. randomly and been like? You know, usually none at all. And it's and the funny thing is, it's it always amuses me to no end. But, you know, maybe this is a guy thing, right? Because guys don't really communicate with each other. Right. <laughs> um, but but uh, but, you know, I would I would get many times I would get in interviews with guys, um, you know, who I've written books on and I won't bring it up that I wrote a book on them and they and they know that I wrote a book on them usually. And they, they might make one quick comment and, and then we'd both be kind of uncomfortable and move on and finish the interview. It's like, they don't want to talk about me having written a book on them. And I certainly don't <laughs> want to bring it up to them either because I, I keep thinking there's nothing good coming from this. I mean, it could only be bad, right. right? They can only complain that you wrote a book on them or something. Right. Well, there's definitely a difference between say, you know, the, the aforementioned geezer Butler that I spoke on who, who talked about the difficulty of kind of writing his life story. 
So there's a dif- there's a difference between being someone's biographer and writing a factual based book on someone's life. Yeah. And then writing a book that's based on your expert opinion on what you think their best body of work is, on what you think the most influential moments of their life, what you think their impact on music is, that's all opinion. So at that point, it all rests on your shoulders as to whether or not someone agrees with you or not. Right. But the biggest difference between an autobiography and a biography is the autobiography isn't going out and talking to the whole rest of the band and the producers, the album cover artists and all that kind of stuff. Right. So so, you know, there's, there's a very big use of having a biography. It's it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 different people talking about that band. Well, it's autobiography. It's just it's just you talking, you know, the odd the odd autobiography guy, you know, gets all bright, bushy tailed and actually goes out and even interviews some other people to get their their uh, advice. And then they have to kind of figure out how do I stick this in my book? Right. No, they'll, they'll make little pull quotes or whatever. But uh, but yeah. And then um, so, yeah, the other thing that I do with these books, I suppose, and this I, I sort of was inspired by um, three of my favorite books that I've ever had to do are. Uh, the Clash, all the albums, all the songs, Led Zeppelin, all the albums, all the songs, and the damned uh, Lively Arts, the Damn Deconstructed. All of those were literally me writing reviews of every single song by those three bands. And I loved doing that. So so that that process has inspired me to say, OK, when I write a, just a normal biography on a band, I'm, I'm going to really be even more dissecting of the songs. I'm going to put in my opinion you know, breaking down the songs, putting the context of the times in. But, um, you know, normally what I like to do is is I really want there to be lots and lots and lots of quotes, preferably gathered by me, you know, uh, specifically. So when you're when you're working on a book about a specific artist, can you give me a few examples of um, things you discovered about an artist in your research that completely surprised you? Something that you learned along the way because you are so knowledgeable on music that even you can be surprised by some things you uncover. And you've written about a lot of amazing artists. Yeah. Wow. You know what? It's just, it's funny getting asked that because um, you, you get asked that about a specific book quite often. But when someone asks you about your whole thing, like my mind just goes like scrambled eggs, right? I, I can't even, I, I just think of all the great interviews I've had with a lot of these guys. Like some people are amazing interviews and some people are not so great interviews. Yeah. They're either cranky or just not very introspective or or they stumble or, over their words. Or they right? just don't even talk a lot. Like, you know, it's yeah. it's hard to explain to someone that doesn't interview people for a living. But when you're talking to someone and you're only getting one or two word answers, is, you know, I'm sure people did it around the holiday table with their families that there's the person that never shuts up and then there's the person that just goes, yep. And when you're trying to interview someone and all they give you is yep and nope, it's, yeah. It, there's a lot of dance. It's like dancing with a, with a corpse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a funny, a funny thing is, is uh, the, the idea of, um, have you ever been asked to do email interviews with people, right? No. Um, well, I, I have lots no. of times because usually what we're doing is putting stuff into print. Right. Um, so uh, so quite often you get asked that and there's always this conversation and negotiation that goes back and forth. I, I, I say, look, I'm telling you, they're, they're going to give me nothing. I mean, nobody who likes doing them. No one really does a good job of them. And every single time it's the same thing. So you want to get a bunch of yeps and no's. 
you know, try try get an email uh, interview out of a rock star. People have asked me to do them when they've interviewed me. But because my entire career has been in audio, whether it be radio or podcasting um, or even some of the video and television work that I've done, kind of hard to do that by email, right? Because I need the actual audio to function. But the times that people have asked me for email interviews, I roll my eyes and just sit back and I'm like, can we just talk? Can you just record me and then you can type it out? But I don't want to sit there and type out my answers like I'm not a writer. Yeah, it's a it's a laziness on the other end for sure cuz they cuz the transcribing process is the really painful thing, right? But yeah. one thing when people ask me and I I get asked that all the time and I I usually comply. Um but what I what I do now is um I turn on my voice recognition software and just and just record the whole thing straight in and uh it's like speak it all in and then just clean it up. So people are really surprised when I give them back usually a pretty darn substantial email interview and it's because I talked it in there was no way I was going to type all that, right? Well, technology then, has then, gone far since your typewriter sales days. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, and and then the other thing that happens is sometimes when I'm asked to do them and they're and they're going to translate it into a foreign language at the other end. Um, I just say, look, I'm just going to give this back to you like a mess. I'm not I'm not going to edit it properly for English because I know you're going to translate it anyways. But I'll also send you the audio file. So you've got that, too. And then you put it together from there. So when you decide like this new Pink Floyd book about Dark Side of the Moon 50 years later, when you say, OK, Day one, I'm in and you start putting all those pages and you start analyzing the songs and and working your process like you described. Um, When you go through, we've all heard Dark Side of the Moon, right? We've all listened to it a billion times. Do you listen to it differently when you decide to write the book? Like, talk me through the process of of analyzing an album that's one of the most famous albums that's ever been released and an album that you probably know 100% by heart. Yeah. Well, let me let me start with I can never listen to it ever again because it just <laughs> it just it, it horrifies me. I I I played it again just just before getting it on get getting on with you here, right? And uh, and I'm listening to it going, "Oh my god, this is depressing the heck out of me because I because it reminds me of work, right? Like Rush, you know, I've written six Rush books, I can't listen to Rush ever again, right? Um so and the funny thing about Dark Side of the Moon, I watched a video the other day. There's a bunch of young kids out there who do these kind of ir- irreverent videos uh, and the guy kind of made a good point. It's like he called called it just the most boring album he's ever heard. Heard, right wow. like it's, it's got it's got a boringness to it it's designed that way right i mean it, it's really like you know slow and there's not much to the drumming and not much to the guitars and not much to the vocals so that's the funny thing about pink floyd they have that they have that uh built-in intentional boredom to what they do right but the guy made a great point he was going through and saying i i can't believe people think this is the greatest thing in the world i'm so bored right because it's um, not high yeah, right. Uh, well, it, but and the other thing that that Floyd does to try and make sure you're not too bored is uh, is they're putting in the sound effects and the little spoken word stuff. But, you know, to go back to an earlier point, you know, to to, to make something like this not daunting, um, I really had like like where's my little thing here? I, I had a um, uh, table of contents, whole book. Yeah. So so um, 
the neat thing was uh, going back and forth with Dennis about the, okay, I want this many chapters on this and I want this and I want you to cover this and I want two sidebars per chapter and all that. And then you start looking at, at a chronology and stuff. And it's funny, I was looking at the book and, and, I don't, the table of contents isn't laid out the way I've got it here, but you know, I've got chapter one, the context as of 1972 sidebar one, Sid Barrett. So, so all through, I've got sidebars on each guy. Okay. So that's good. I've got live at Pompeii. I've got, you know, the extra players. I've got side one, side two, recording side one, recording side two. So soon as you have this great, you know, this whole thing about eat the elephant one bite at a time, soon as you've got this, this massive structure laid out and the, and all these trivia facts just start hitting you in the head. You start realizing I'm don't I'm not dealing with that right now. All I'm dealing with right now is sidebar two, which is a definition of progressive rock. That's all I'm talking about. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, what else we got here? Uh, the questions thing. So the thing when uh, when Roger like asked people questions and, and to get like the spoken word out of them or what else we got here? Tour date archive. So so there's just an archive of tour dates. Sidebar two of chapter six. So don't think about it. Just put it out of your head. Work through it in order when you get to that. Okay, time to build the tour date archive. Or uh, I've got a sidebar on their new deal with Columbia. I've got a sidebar on, you know, the funny story of this album being on the Billboard 200, you know, over and over again or continuously or whatever, right? So so that really helps. But, uh, but and, and so, yeah, so also to your point about listening to it, what I do with all of these books is I try not to listen all the way through stuff all the way through, like if you put the thing on at the beginning, when you're writing about the beginning song, you're playing these albums over and over and over again. By the time you got to write it right about the last song in the album, you've like heard it 50 times. Right. So so you have to make sure that that, OK, if I'm not if I'm not dealing with that song, I don't want to get so sick of it that I'm just going to be so don't even want to work on it by playing it way too many times. So, yeah, you just play the stuff in little chunks when you need to. Um, so so you don't it's just not rolling through your head constantly. And in perfect timing for the release of this book, which, by the way, comes out on Valentine's Day, um, just before the end of the year, Pink Floyd did a massive digital streaming dump that they've done the last couple years where they released 18 full live concerts from the Dark Side of the Moon era. Full shows now that people can go back and listen to the live performances in the era that you're talking about in the writing of this book. There yeah, are- that's great too. And but the but the main thing is this is called Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon 50 or something at 50. I don't know yeah. what it is, but but the point is is that yeah, it comes on a Valentine's Day. The album came out 50 years ago in March. So right. it's, it's it's literally coming out. And and Cordo's got a few of these planned. I've I've written another one as well. But it shows that the interest on this album mm-hmm. 50 years later that the band is even releasing content from that era to help celebrate the anniversary. And if they can just dump 18 full live concerts, the Pink Floyd vaults must be insane. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You, you just think about the, the Van Halen vaults. I mean, those vaults must be insane with Eddie sitting there working constantly. Right. And just recording stuff and not putting it out. But yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, this is a, this is a record that sold like 45 million copies. It's like, 23 times platinum or something in the in the states um 50 or 15 15 times platinum i guess in the states um one of the top selling albums of all time and obviously pink floyd were just a a complete juggernaut but 
before this, this is their eighth album. They were nobody before this, right? Um, you know, they they're almost like the the um the most extreme example that we can ever think of of a band that was allowed to live on a major label by putting out just the most unlistenable music. Possible, That's what right? I was gonna bring up with you. Yeah. What happened with Pink Floyd, what you're talking about, would be unheard of today that a band would be allowed to release seven albums to be completely experimental with no hope of it being a massive commercial success. And then on the eighth album, it would be just like digging for oil, finding nothing, finding nothing, finding nothing, and them not pulling the plug on the drill. And then the eighth time around, they released Dark Side of the Moon. That mechanism with record companies and the way that the music industry functions today, that would never happen today. Yeah, exactly. And and they're still on a major label that whole time. And yeah, some of it was crazy, like Adam Hart Mother and I'm a Gumma and stuff like that. But, you know, it's it's not like Dark Side of the Moon was like those records. I mean, it is way more commercial than anything they had done. Uh, but they had so to that, earn the so right to get there. They, the label stuck yeah. with them, which is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even looking at, you know, you look at a at a career like Bon Jovi, right? Because in high school, like the sun rose and set on the hair of John Bon Jovi for me. But like mm-hmm. Slippery When Wet or even Def Leppard with Hysteria, those are the records people think of. But they weren't their first records. The labels yeah. stuck with them knowing that they would get there. Whereas yeah. now the way that it works is that if you don't have a number one song as the first single off the first record good luck making it to the second or third record. So how many dark side of the moons are we never going to get because the bands are never enriched enough to be able to release enough albums to get to that record that they were born to make. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it happened with quite a few bands. I mean, you know, there are a whole bunch of bands that, that, were, were was making fairly commercial music but so this is the other the other stream that that weren't selling a lot of records and they were allowed to live too right and the one i think of um because i'm working on something on king crimson right now king crimson is as insane as as pink floyd that's that's a similar sort of situation where they're still on a major label and they're making the most insane music possible and yet they're still allowed to live as well but uh but yeah floyd went so long that way and it's not like there was nothing commercial along the way i mean the first two are are perfectly good serviceable psych albums right uh but then after that yeah i guess really weird they got soundtrack albums and you know metal's kind of getting there sort of thing but uh yeah this is this was a big change and and then the debate is always like what it what is this dark side of the moon album is it progressive rock i mean that's a debate we have when we put together our dumb little youtube shows all the time and stuff like uh is is pink floyd a progressive rock band right they're they're kind of thrown into that but no one they're not the first band that comes to mind everybody talks about yes and genesis and elp and king crimson and you know jethro tull and stuff first um but pink floyd you know back to that uh back to that uh you know they're basically a four-four band, and it's very slow. And there's not there's nobody's nobody's playing you know crazy virtuoso stuff all over the place. Uh, it's it's considered progressive really because of the conceptual nature and the album covers and stuff like that more than anything. Uh, and then you know it, I, I I often say that that the reason Pink Floyd made it, um, and I, I truly believe this, the reason Pink Floyd made it is the little doodads, the little ear candy. 
the little spoken word stuff like that was genius. Um, it, it had happened before. Beatles always do everything first. Um, but but, you know, Pink Floyd really made made an art out of that. And and I swear, I mean, I mean, with that with that music, which is not very inviting or, or showy, put it that way, there's really not a lot going on in the music. Um, they really, I think, needed that to, to put it over the top. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's just seems like a stupid little thrown off sort of thing to say, oh, Pink Floyd's famous because of, uh, you know, what the heck is that guy saying in the background? Did we record <laughs> some weird little conversation? It's so cryptic, right? That's it. That's I think that's why they made it. It's also part of the legacy. Speaking of the Beatles, um, the new documentary, If These Walls Could Sing, about Abbey Road Studios and just the unbelievable music and the legacy of that famous recording studio. You know, all of the 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 albums that have been made there, including, you know, this documentary that Mary McCartney made. She was actually able to get Roger Waters and... Gilmore, both on this documentary, albeit obviously not in the same room at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Alan Parsons is is big involved in uh, Dark Side of the Moon, and he worked with the Beatles as well, right? Yep. So, yeah, yeah, there's all that to it as well. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, th this is one legacy of the Beatles. But uh, I, I mean, even even just the again, just the just the kind of simple music part of it. But I, I just I just find that so funny that, you know, so much of this is really there's not a lot going on in this. But, you know, on this album as well, though, there is there's like there's um, instrumental stuff. There's the uh, there's the guest vocal eclairatory. There's sax. You know, M money is a strange song. You know, it's in a weird time signature and it's kind of funky. And but again, you know, it's it's the cash registers and the fact that it's about money and 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 things like that. You know, that that make a hit single. It's hit singles often come from I I did at least one if not two or three episodes of my podcast on on novelty you know novelty songs and whatever and and so many singles are hit singles simply because they got some stupid little novelty hook to them and i swear with with pink floyd money it's those cash registers right um do you know in your vast research where the wizard of oz tie-in with dark side of the moon came from do you know who the person was that started this whole thing where did it where did it come oh, from boy i did a whole did i do a whole i did do a whole chapter on that i did a sidebar on that called dark side of the rainbow and off the top of my head i can't remember where it came from it i i believe it just started off as like uh possibly just boy i'm not sure it was like i, a I had viral a thing watching before it, it was viral yeah, like it, it became so this cool. thing that people just kind of talked yeah. about. Did you ever try it? It's the the roar of the lion hit play on the record and sync it all up. And yeah. And then, you know, I, I right in that sidebar, it was a blast watching the same thing get done to uh, Paul Blart Mall Cop. Right. Um, so there so there's a sync up with that and you see amazing things happen. But when they do sync it up. That whole dark side of the moon with Wizard of Oz makes it so creepy and occulty, right? Because you really, you really learn um, the power of soundtrack music when it's yes. applied to a movie. Because when certain things, it's not even necessarily the syncing up, but just certain music with certain things you're watching. There's a synergy there where one and one equal three kind of thing where you go, wow, this is like some new art. It's doing something really strange to my brain hearing this with that. And writing this King Crimson thing, there's um, there's um, it, it was pointed out in these interviews I'm doing. So there's there's one in 
Buffalo 66, Christina Ricci is dancing in an empty bowling alley to King Crimson Moonchild, which is amazing. And then there's a, what's that? Uh, there's a, a movie, a recent movie. What is it called? Children, grown men, something like that. Um, but the whole opening sequence of this like spy film is set to uh, King Crimson in the court or King Crimson, the court of the Crimson King. It's not called in the right. Uh, and, and you see this whole London city scene playing out and you're getting this moldy, oldy, old Pink Floyd type song. And it's really powerful. Right. So. Yeah, that's that's an incredible thing to watch. It's it's really cool watching that. Well, watch film. a horror film with the volume down. Right, Half yeah. the reason, <laughs> I mean, Jaws is a perfect example. You never even really got to see the shark for like three quarters of the movie, but the music is what made you afraid. Yeah, it's so necessary. Yeah, and, and we've noticed like the power with uh, with Master of Puppets and and the Kate Bush recently. We've noticed the power of taking you know an, a rock song and sticking it in there rather than the thing we've grown up all our lives listening to is just classical music set set to all this stuff. Right, it's always classical and making funny little sound effects and things dropping and you know all that. So so when even still. The power of rock music when it's stuck on those films is is incredible. Um, last year, I had a chance to interview Nick Mason when he was going around with his saucer full of secrets tour. I asked him if he had ever synced up Dark Side of the Moon with The Wizard of Oz. And he said he did. And then he got bored and he shut it off. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, part, part of that is part of that probably is um, to do with, again, listening to his own album makes him think about work, right? How many yeah. interviews, uh, how many guys, uh, rock stars have you interviewed that said, you know, when when we finished with that album, I've, I've never heard it again. I don't even think I own a copy. And you see him looking around. I don't, yes, I should get a copy of that album. I don't even own one anymore, right? I ask, so, I ask yeah. artists with big catalogs sometimes if they could name all their album titles. If I started throwing out, can you give me the seventh song off of your eighth record? Like, would you know? Some artists can. Some artists, it's so ingrained in them that there was such a process and it's so personal for them that, that it's imprinted on them. And other artists are like, I have no freaking idea. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to well, Google and, that. And to a know. subtle thing, something that I've noticed, and I've even had this conversation with a few of them. I think, I think Lemmy was one I, I was talking about about this. But, um, you know, if we could get in their head for a minute, it's like, so, so they make the record for two or three or four weeks, right? could be 30 years ago or whatever, but then you go on the road, their, their life, um, you know, they, what they think their job is, these rock stars essentially is playing live. They don't think of it as making records. And I'm, I'm constantly wanting to ask them about the records and, and they, they, they're thinking, wait a minute. I mean, for 11 and a half months, all I do is play concerts. I'm, I'm like a performer. I'm a circus performer. Right. Um, but you know, what Lemmy said kind of made a lot of point is like the songs off those records, the only ones I know, and I know them way better than I want to know them, are the ones I play live all the time. The rest of them, they're an ancient history. I don't know anything about those songs anymore. Well, I talked to Will Turpin from Collective Soul just a few weeks ago, and he was like, when we're getting ready to go out on the road, we don't have to practice Shine. We know the song. We've played it yeah. a thousand times. But if we're going to pull something out of the archive, then we do have to rehearse that, which is why... Looking at an artist like Bruce Springsteen, who's got such a massive catalog, and when you go see him live, 
his band has got to be able to keep up if he just decides at the last minute, hey, I want to play this song that they didn't even rehearse. They got to know it and have it ready. And he's famous for doing that. Whereas other artists could never pull that off because they don't have their catalog memorized to play live. Well, and and they're also um, they're they're not they their bar is not as high as Bruce wants the bar to be for his his guys, right? They're oh, just yeah. not not that talented. No, right? if you're in Bruce Springsteen's band, it's yeah. because you're the best that there is. Because yeah. he's not easy on those guys, and they've all said so in interviews. Like his bar is high, but his bar is high for himself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Cool. So when you are analyzing music in the way that you do, whether it be researching for your podcast, which I want to talk about when you're researching all of these books, which it still blows my mind. You've done it more than 115 times. What the hell do you do to get away from work? Because most people use music to get away from work. And for you and I, and a lot of other people, we can't. So what is it that you do to, to, to rest your brain? Yeah. So, so that's an interesting question because I'm constantly having people say, Oh, go play this. Oh, you should, you'll like this and stuff. And it's like, if I want to get in that conversation with them, I tell them, I don't listen to music for leisure anymore. You know, it's, I have a lot of leisure, you know, but it's, but it's usually, and that's the other thing about being a guy and growing old. It's, it's a fun, there's this funny joke about guys and getting old that's uh that's like basically um yeah when i turned 50 i suddenly became really interested in world war ii you know and and it's and it's funny and so so the corollary of that is that um i've found with with myself and and a lot of people i know is i've moved completely over from a fiction world into a non-fiction world so i can't watch fiction movies anymore it's only docs i can't read fiction books anymore it's only doc you know what is that nonfiction books <laughs> right um and i can't read music books i don't i don't just nothing about music is really leisure anymore to me when i when i listen to music now i'm always the the gears are going like i i gotta make some notes of this i gotta if i'm gonna listen to something i'm it's because i'm gonna write about it someday and and you know i find myself listening to that's the other thing i don't listen to a lot of new music because i think i'm too old that i'm never going to be writing about those new bands nor do i care nor can i even relate to them but I find when I when I when I push back and people say, you know, oh, what do we listen to? And I say, well, not much. But I but I tell them things like uh, I I could see spending the next two months just learning about Susie and the Banshees, which I never paid attention to. And I love to death right now. Right. So there's so much. Uh, and then I thought, you know, I, I've said this before where they they ought to have a word in the in the dictionary for uh, for nostalgia, for things that you missed but, but are from your era. Right. So I've, I've told people like I could spend the rest of my life and probably another hundred years if I wanted to just learning about things from the seventies and eighties that, that I didn't know about. And to me, that's, that's better than new music. Um, it just something about it because you relate to it and, and you know, they were all made with big producers and expensive studios and everything was handmade and it, it was, it was hard to do and all these, for all these crazy reasons. Um, you know, it's uh, so. So, yeah. So to get back to your point, it's it's talk radio, talk YouTube documentaries. Um, you know, I've worked with Banger Films, too. So I've learned quite a bit uh, about documentaries. So when I watch documentaries, it's kind of interesting to me to see how how they're cooked. Right. 
Um, but uh, yeah, not 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 a lot of music except jogging or in the car and stuff like that. Well, I'm, it's I'm like listening. me getting in the car and trying to relax and listening to the radio because I just can't yeah. not analyze it. I just it's <laughs> it's not possible yeah. because it's what you do. So obviously, you're gonna listen to it, watch it, analyze it from a completely different. It's like being a welder and saying, "Hey, look at all these welds that someone else did." You you yeah. can't not see the flaws you can't not analyze the way that they did it it's just it just is what it is yeah yeah you bring up the 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 reference of Susie and the banshees and just as a side note with wednesday and the success of that series on netflix jenna ortega came out recently and said that the the famous scene i don't know if you've seen it of this series of wednesday is that she's at a school dance and she choreographed kind of this quirky weird dance and it's one of the most popular parts of the show so far. And she talks in interviews about how she went back and watched footage of Susie and the Banshees to help give her wow. ideas that for so choreography. Cool. And so yeah. streams of Susie and the Banshees have gone up wow. just because Jenna Ortega has been referencing Susie and the Banshees when talking about choreographing wow. this dance yeah. scene in Wednesday. So it's so cool. funny, like what you were talking about, that like, you know, these older bands get used in these newer projects like Stranger Things, and then all of a sudden, yeah. it all becomes new again. Master of Puppets yeah. included, Kate Bush included. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and just, just so much music out there. It's it's hard to keep up. You know, it's basically, I'm big into art as well, too. I, I do art. I watch a lot of art stuff. I read art books and stuff. But the same thing's happening in all the arts, really. It's And it almost seems like a little bit of like uh, the fall of the Roman Empire thing where you think, you know, our, our, our problems are all like pretty, pretty ridiculous problems, right? Oh, we got, there's, we, we can't make, there's too, there's too many artists and, and too many musicians and all these things. Like there's not, a, there's not enough plumbers and drywallers and stuff. Right. And, and you think it's, uh, everybody wants to be in the arts. Right. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the reason why it's hard to make money as a musician or hard to make money as the artist is, is it's just this massive fire hose of supply coming at you. When, when the demand is way smaller than that. Right. And, and we still have all the old artists we can still listen to. So it just gets to be more and more and more and more. And then you got Spotify and it's just all right at your fingertips. So it's like, well, that, that's why, that's why every new band is going to have like a hundred fans, right? There's going to be one artist for every hundred fans of everything. Right. Well, I mean, it's, you definitely see it <clears throat> with a lot of the new artists. And I talk to a lot of them as, you know, mm -hmm. part of the podcast and stuff. And what's happening now is, especially in harder rock, especially with a lot of these newer, heavier bands, is that the outlets for them are starting to go away, meaning a lot of rock stations are going away. And so mm -hmm. they're being driven back underground. And what's great about that is that the fans, it's all kind of going full circle because now they're growing in this really organic way and developing these fan bases the old-fashioned way, which is the live shows, the shaking hands, the way that a lot of these rock bands broke back in the day mm -hmm. is starting to happen again because it's being forced that that's how they have to break because there aren't these big, massive... Like you said, there's so much noise on the internet that in order for these bands to kind of break out of the noise and build a fan base, 
they have to do it by hitting the streets like the bands did back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And it is working. Those bands are out there. Like, I spend a lot of my time kind of looking for these next generations of rock bands, and they are out there. It's just they're mixing the ingredients, right? The ingredients don't really change. There's only so many spices. There's only so Mm. many ingredients. If you're going to make a cake, flour's got to be in there. But it's the mixtures of them and the inspirations and these newer bands are are taking inspiration from a lot of different places, especially hip-hop, because they're growing up with that being omnipresent, whereas, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, it didn't exist. Yeah. So they're definitely there, but it's but it's a different it's a different thing. And these major labels aren't signing a lot of bands that they know to go back to what we we're talking about will be a success automatically. So there's this really cool underbelly of these indie labels and bands that are breaking without a record company that it's it's a very weird time in the quote yeah. music business right now. Yeah. It's exciting but weird. Yeah, it, it it would just it would just make me despondent, you know, when when I'd think about oh there's I I don't know what the number is, but it's it's I think it's over a hundred thousand albums out every year, right? Yeah, you know, and and people have said in in the thing we're doing in in podcasting and YouTube shows, right? They say if if your numbers aren't going down, you're doing great because there's so many new podcasts and YouTube shows being added all the time because it's so easy to do and the technology gets easier and easier. So, you know, apparently like if we're not even growing our numbers very much and we're even maintaining, that's a victory because there's just so much more competition all the time. Well, I'll correct you and say this. It's easy to start. Starting a podcast, starting a video show, starting all of those things is easy to start. Mm -hmm. It is not easy to maintain. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that you see a lot with people that get into podcasting is, you know, the, the gateway to it, the gear, the, the equipment, that's, you know, back, back in the day in the 70s, you needed a big million dollar studio and the engineers and all of that. Now you got a computer and you get a little microphone or whatever and you, but, but get 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. What are you up to? Like 190 podcast episodes now? Like, yeah, 182, I think. Yep. Yeah. Like getting up to that point is hard because you got to be able to feed the beast. As I say, you've got to be able to, to, to find new things to talk about. And that's why a lot of people start podcasting or start YouTubing and then they quit Yeah, because they run out of ideas. Pod fade as Christian calls it. Right? Yes, it is pod fade. <laughs> So talk to me about the concept behind your podcast, because obviously, you know, when you when you decide to start a podcast like the Mistress Carrie podcast is a rock lifestyle podcast, I call it. So I can talk to an author like you. I can talk to musicians. I talk to um, techs, people that work behind the scenes, sound engineers, roadies, and then anyone that's kind of involved in the music lifestyle. So whether it be Metallica's master brewer of their or master distiller of their whiskey or people that are in the lifestyle, when you're going to give birth to a new podcast, you have to have an idea. Your idea, I think, is really cool and inventive and something only someone like you that has such a vast musical knowledge could feed that beast. So for someone that's never heard your podcast, can you talk to me a little bit about it? 
And yeah, where so the you funny, came up with the idea? Yeah, the, the funny thing is, literally when Christian contacted me and said, ah, you got, you got an idea for a podcast, and we'd like you to do a podcast for us, it took me five minutes to come up with that idea. It was literally the first thing I came up with. Uh, but, you know, having done a bunch of YouTube shows and stuff and gone on people's shows, I suppose it's that whole thing like, you know, how long did it take you to do that painting? It looks like my, my kid could have done it. And you say, well, it took me 35 years. That's why I could do it so fast. And that's why I can do it, period. Right. <laughs> so maybe there's a bit of that in there. But um, but uh, so I so the, the concept is. It's called History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. And part of that is uh, is tribute to Marco Barbieri, who named his heavy metal label Century Media Records because he didn't want it to be to have just a heavy metal name. Right. He just wanted it to sound just general. Right. Um, so that just subconsciously went through my mind as well. So so I, I wanted a name. It's not even a great name, but it, but it's it's I wanted a name that. um that didn't pin me to heavy metal because I didn't want to get pinned to heavy metal. Number one. So, so the main part of the concept is I just, uh, I, I come up with an idea, a theme, and uh, there's five 30 second clips that, that feed into that theme. And then hopefully I got categories that those five fit into. And hopefully I've got a few examples also that fit into that category. And then at the end, I'll, I'll say some honorable mentions or whatever, but uh, you know, so, so that's, that's kind of it. And, and so it's not heavy metal. It's, it's a pretty general thing. It's a framework. The other thing I, I wanted to do that I told myself very quickly, some subconsciously was um, I didn't want to have anybody on ever. I, I just never wanted to interview anybody. I don't want to think about guests. I don't want to schedule every single time I want to do one of these. When the idea hits me, I want to just be able to do it, right? Make a few notes and just go. Um, I do know there's no editing at all. So there's no stopping, starting. It's just all the way right through. Um, because I'm kind of low tech, Pantheon strips in my music clips, but that's all. Um, so I, I, they do that and they do all the stuff with ads. I don't even think about any of that. So I just, I just speak it out in, in a rapid fire 26 to 32 minutes. Every single one is like that. I keep an eye on the clock and make sure it's a half hour every time. Uh, you know, Christian always jokes with me that, Oh, Martin's got this, this uh, format. And he, he says exactly the same thing every time. It's like, I'd say, Christian, once long time ago, before I did the first one, I said, tell me exactly what to say to, to introduce. I'd, and, and, and he did. And I typed it out. And so it's sitting there. And every time I save my new episode, it's there. So I was like, Christian, that's why I say exactly the same thing every time. You told me this off the top of your head 180 episodes ago. And that, that's why I say the exact same thing every time. Right. Um, so. So, yeah, so so the main thing I, I definitely wanted to do is I didn't want to have to think about guests, wonder how good they're going to be, how long they're going to talk, are they going to go off topic, blah, blah, blah. Because I interview guys all the time and there's always that stress and nervousness and they stand you up and then you got to do it again or you got to do it at their time. And and so so that's what I wanted to do as well. Just make it a no guest show, um, you know, which gets me out of people saying, can I be on your podcast? And I say, no, I don't have any guests. <laughs> so uh, so that's good, too. But. But, uh, but yeah, so, so, you know, it leans, it leans uh, hard rock and heavy metal out of those 180 episodes. I'm sure 130 of them are definitely hard rock and heavy metal of some sort. Um, but yeah, just come up with five examples of something that fits a theme. I've done uh, uh, what uh, best, uh, best album titles and best and worst album titles recently. Um, geez, what a, a million different things, but 
but essentially that's it. Five little 30 second music clips, you know, and, and now there's this debate, you know, Christian's talking about it, the thing, Oh, we're pretty soon. We're going to be allowed to use full songs. And I, I wrote him back and said, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to be a radio station. I don't want, I don't know if I want this thing to just go on and on and on. So, you know, maybe, maybe it'll stay at 30 seconds. What I stick in there. Right. See, and so, you, uh, so the reason why I wanted to ask you that question is that our podcasts are literally a photo opposite negative of each other, right? Yeah. Is that I want the interviews, I want them to go off topic, and I want the songs because the thing about uh, the, the thing about doing the interviews on the air live in radio is, you know, I I call it kind of sitting there with your ass hanging out. Like you're live, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what kind of crazy thing could happen, but I also want to be able to reference it back to the songs. I look forward to the time that I can put music into my podcast and put the full songs in there so that I can say, hey, this is your brand new song. We got to play it. And then I want to come back and talk about it, analyze it all. I mean, I make a corresponding playlist for every episode of the podcast with all of the music that I put together, including I'm going to put one about your episode. And go back and find songs from all of the artists that we referenced so that anyone that's finding out who you are for the first time, you may have mentioned King Crimson and they've never heard of them before. They know they can go into the corresponding playlist and find some King Crimson songs and maybe it's going to turn them on to something they've never heard before. Yeah, but don't you don't you worry like um, I would think 90 percent of the people don't want to hear the full song of what you're going to play. They're going to go, Oh my God, she's going to play a four minute and 30, you know, kids these days are just, and me even I'm so guilty of it on Spotify. When I'm checking out an album now, I swear to God, I'm, I'm, I'm like clicking on four five second samples of those songs and then going to the next one. Like I'm literally down to four or five seconds uh, to, for me to sort out what I, what I, you know, what this album is. It's what it literally like, right? speed dating on your app. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's Tinder. But, but you got to realize, so on my podcast, for example, if I, if like my latest episode was, was called sounds like cashmere. Right. So, so literally, um, you know, I, I don't think I included actual cashmere in my five examples. So I, I have five examples, right? But a couple of those only have a part that sounds like cashmere. You know, there's Genesis Squonk on there. But, you know, say, for example, I was going to play, um, you know, say say one of my examples of some stupid episode was Sweet Home Alabama, right? You know, I definitely I don't think anybody wants to hear the entire song uh, when I talk about it. Right. I mean, they just want it. They don't even want to hear the clip, probably. But it's but if I used it formally and and I'll actually I'll actually um, if I have five examples in a category for my first song, you know, that fits something right. Say uh, I, I did a, an episode on cool fade outs you know, fade, fade outs of songs and, and what's going on in the fade out or whatever. But I'll, I'll make sure actually I play a song that's not so normal that everybody knows because I'm thinking they don't even want to hear 30 seconds of Led Zeppelin Black Dog, right? So I'll pick a different song even just to bore them for the 30 seconds. But everybody knows they're only getting 30 seconds. So I think they're going to stick around. They're not going to turn off because I, I swear if, if we turn into radio stations and start turning in two and three hour shows, um, they're they're not going to be want to be there because they don't want to be forced to listen to whole whole songs. I don't think. In, well, I think it depends people. on where you're listening, right? Yeah. As someone that still works in radio, I think it depends. You go back to those people that are plumbers and and framers and long haul yeah. truck drivers. 
they're not sitting at a computer flicking through Spotify five seconds yeah. at a time. They're actually yeah. doing their job. And the music is what's keeping them company, you know, yeah. is, is I'm kind of that, that devil that sits on their shoulder throughout the day that talks to them and plays the music and kind of talks about what's going on or whatever. But a lot of time it's harder for them to kind of flip quickly because their hands are full of tools and, and they're doing things as opposed to, But do you know, do you know for sure? I mean, maybe most of those plumbers would actually rather hear you talking way more often and way less music or they don't want to hear you talking at all. And they only want to hear music. So we don't know. Right. That's the delicate balance of radio, of podcasting, of all of that is I think it depends on what you're talking about and whether or not they're interested in it. I think. You know, like to go back to the whole World War II thing, if somebody's into World War II, I could talk for five hours on the radio about it and they'd be interested, whereas someone else would be like, what the hell? I just want you to play Black Dog. I'm over here welding. (laughs) Keep me company. You know, and that's the trial and error of it is that, you know, what's that old saying? You can keep some of the people happy some of the time, but you can't keep all the people happy all the time. Like, right, right, yeah. you know, it just is. But I think I think it is an exciting thing that um, the ability to use a full song in a podcast, whether or not you do it, the ability to be able to do it, that the music industry yeah. is evolving to the point where the music licensing and all of those things can be paid for where podcasters could find a way to use the songs I think is a yeah. is an exciting thing if that's what you want to do oh yeah and so many times you know in this uh because we're limited 30 seconds so many times I wanted that extra 10 seconds or more because I had two or three points I wanted to make and it and and it takes 45 seconds to make that point right and then other times when you're thinking I would love to turn people onto this song to this music and and I think it needs the whole song to turn them on then your brain's going okay I'm actually now thinking like a DJ right because in 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 my in my podcast I'm not particularly the aim isn't all the time to be turning people on to music it's it's to be telling people stupid factoids about about this stuff right so there that's two totally different roles but that dj role that dj role is why i like writing the books too it's like i want to turn people onto this so i'm going to describe it in an exciting way and i'm going to give you cool quotes from the artist about it because i really want you to be a rainbow fan right so that's that's pure dj right me writing a book on a band is is me being a dj but my podcast more like uh let's let's just let's just find all the haha funny versions of of bands making songs that sound like cashmere (laughs) (laughs) well i cannot wait to kind of dig through this dark side of the moon book because i think when you look at greatest album of all time right and and i don't mean subjective and and you know the debate over art and all of that i just mean bare bones stats it is one of the biggest albums that's ever been released uh an album that um will live on forever for whatever reason it is the the artistry the imagery the sound effects whatever it is it's just something that will just always be and so to be able to kind of go through it analyze the little factoids to kind of dig through it and to be able to look at it with the rearview mirror looking back 50 years, which I cannot believe, um, I think is pretty cool. So it comes out on Valentine's Day. 
and uh, you're yeah, it's 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 literally a, a a really good pile of liner notes is what it is, right? And that's why I used to love immersion boxes. To even use a Pink Floyd term, I mean those you know I've I've got my dark side immersion. So that that's for me. I, I don't buy a lot of physical product anymore, but when I do, my favorite thing is box sets, and my favorite thing is liner notes. Can I just ask you one quick question? Sure. What what are your five favorite albums of all time? Five favorite. That's really hard. Um, and as someone that's asked that question a million times, um, it's it's very dependent on like the time, right? Like like yeah. the Beatles is going to be in there at least once, but the album is going to change. Sometimes I'm going to say the White Album. Sometimes I'm going to say Sergeant Pepper. Sometimes I'm going to say Abbey Road. Sometimes when right. I'm feeling a little frisky, it's Rubber Soul. But the Beatles, like, there's no way being the Beatles lover that I am that a top five album thing for me. Um, I'm one of those people, and it's something I got from my mom, that certain albums are frozen in time for me, right? So so in my high school years, I think some of the biggest records for me were Slippery When Wet from Bon Jovi because it was just, it is the soundtrack to so many amazing times in my life that the music... The artistry, all of that is inconsequential. It's what that album has as far as emotional connection to me. You know, the same thing with like a Queensryche uh, Operation Mindcrime. I love that album and I will still go and just listen to it top to bottom. There's going to be probably the downward spiral from Nine Inch Nails in there because that's the soundtrack to my college. And I think that album is just an absolute masterpiece and being a diehard Nine Inch Nails fan like I am. I just love that record. Um, probably Tool Anima is going in there talking about, wow. you know, being one of those people that listens to a seven, eight, nine-minute song and and not skipping yeah. through Spotify the way that you're talking about. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. I'd probably mm-hmm. want to put a Metallica album on there, but one day it's going to be Injustice for All. The next day it's going to be Master of Puppets. I'll get into the fight about putting the Black Album on there because I don't care what anybody says. That album is a masterpiece, whether you want to critique Metallica for having some commercial success with it or not. Um, You know, there's an album like Appetite for Destruction that how many times can you listen to Sweet Child of Mine, but you can't argue that that album is an absolute gem and came out in those formative music years for me. Like it, I, I don't know that it's, so that's why when I interview artists, the way that I ask that question is, and I'll ask you the same question, even though you're, you're only a hobby drummer, as, as you said, I ask artists to give me an example of a song they think is so well crafted that they covet it and wish they wrote it. Give me an example of perfect songwriting and then break it down and tell me why. So I'll ask you that question. Yeah, I've uh, I've been known in the back of one or two books, uh, greatest songs of all time. I've I put Aerosmith "Draw the Line" in there before, because uh, to me, to me it relates to Led Zeppelin "Celebration Day," in that it's like the most sophisticated, cool, interesting, you know, r- a riff with a lot of notes in it that goes over a bunch of time, rock and rolls as well. Um, I've I've been known to call that song an epic, but they didn't need to make it epic length to make it like an epic. Um, it's got the 
most extreme Steven Tyler vocal performance. Um, it it does sound like an amazing Rolling Stones song, but also an amazing heavy metal song. Um, you know, that whole, when he's singing the verses, it sounds like the most heroic Keith Richards going, but then it goes into that other, dun, 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 and that little, dun, 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 that reminds me of Celebration Day. That's where, where it comes from, Celebration Day. So I've, I've often said my favorite Zeppelin songs are Friends, Celebration Day, and In My Time of Dying. And Celebration Day is such a weird one to pick, but but I listen to it, you know, so, so those two things line up to me. Like, like it's, that's the, that's the most sophisticated riff Jimmy Page ever did. And I think draw the line is the most sophisticated thing, but, but, but an even more perfect Aerosmith song is, is walk this way. In fact, I did a, a podcast episode. That's right. So I did one. What did I call it? It was literally the idea was um, these are songs that are so good that, that my favorite thing would be sitting in the boardroom and walking in as the band and putting that song on for the staffers and they're all sitting around a big table and they're just losing their minds at the money they're going to make off of this song. And in that I included walk this way, Bohemian Rhapsody, um, which just uh, hit 2 billion streams on Spotify. Yeah. yeah Bohemian Rhapsody is the most extreme, amazing song ever done you know, on a really objective level, but I included a uh, Pantera Cowboys from hell and madness, our house. Wow. Um, so, so, you know, these are all ones where I could just picture the staffers like looking around. and then, and then I made a joke in there about how uh, I, you know, Alice Cooper schools out. Right. And, and I remember saying in the podcast, I, I said, and I could picture, uh, you know, one guy looking, looking to the guy next to him said, how come you never bring me any songs about the last day of school? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. So like, there's just these genius ideas that happen in songs, right. Where you go, that's, that was, that was a great idea. That was going to be a hit, you know, just cause the stupid idea. Right. Um, so, so that's a funny thing when you think of, uh, and that goes back to episodes I've done on novelty and stuff as well. But um you know, because in that you've got the kids singing and the no more pencils, no more books. And you've got the bell going off and all that stuff all helps. Right. You think of uh, ballroom blitz by sweet. Um, there's just so many there's songs with a bunch of bells and whistles in it. No, and nothing has more bells and whistles in it than Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, seriously. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think I think, my, you know, the first one that came to mind for me, that Aerosmith song is is uh, is like not incredibly intuitive like a bohemian rhapsody but i think man that is really perfectly done well most of the time when i ask artists that songwriting question more often than not it's a song that is brilliant in its simplicity and it's a theme that comes up over and over again with songwriters that i talk to is that amazing songwriting isn't necessarily complex songwriting that the brilliance of it is in its simplicity I think they're wrong, it- though, because when you ask for the best song out of millions and millions and millions of songs, it's probably got to have a lot of everything. And simplicity, sim- simple songs are just too subjective. And, you know, it, it's it's just, you know, it's like abstract painting. Right. My kid could do that. You know, if you get simpler and simpler and simpler, like I ain't going to pick an Eagles song for for greatest song of all time. Right. I, I think I think it's got to have some fireworks to it to be oh, amazing to not argue about it. Put it that way, yeah. like a Bohemian Rhapsody. You're not really going to argue about that one. You know what I mean? Well, they but did when but, it came out. They didn't but even you're going to argue about she loves you a lot, you, you know. And, yeah. and I want to hold your hand. Right. It's like you. everybody can sit around and go, 
yeah, boy, yeah, that's a beautifully written song. It's just so well put together. And then some other guys say, well, it's stupid. It's, you know, and they're both right, right? So I interviewed so, uh, Mark LaBelle from Dirty Honey, and he told me about a conversation that he had with Brian Johnson from ACDC. And there was a three-week gap between when ACDC went out on the road and when Back in Black came out. Mm-hmm. And in those three weeks, the band was on tour. And he talked about how there, you know, Brian Johnson was telling Mark LaBelle what it was like to be the new singer of ACDC in front of these crowds that hadn't heard the album yet. And that Malcolm would go up to him and be like, come on, let's really blow their minds. Let's hit him with Back in Black. Imagine being one of those people in one of those crowds that heard Back in Black live before yeah, you wow. got to hear the record. Yeah. And it, it goes back to what you're talking about, about walking into that boardroom and dropping the record off. It's like, yeah. imagine having your first exposure of Back in Black be at an ACDC concert when no one knew what the record was going to sound like without Bon Scott. Yeah. And then you and just it's get funny you mentioned that one. I think that's the only song off that album that could do that in that boardroom at all, because I don't think you shook me all night long or hell's bells is really going to have the same effect back in black almost gets there. But it but ACDC just as a rule has that built in simplicity and boredom thing that's not going to drive them absolutely bonkers on a subjective level. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on an objective level, on a subjective level, any song by on that album might might, you know, go, oh, my God, it's going to be so huge. But back in black, it's just got the spaces in it and the simplicity and the different parts all put together. It's not that simple a song. Right. It's when you break it down, it's got they, they do a bunch of cool things in it. Right. So, well, there I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but there was. There's a story about Angus being on a radio show back in the day and someone called and was like, ACDC sucks. They've made the same album 12 times and Angus just leaned forward and said 13. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's like, but <laughs> the brilliance of it is that who's got a deeper catalog of songs that are omnipresent? Like the number of songs that are constantly getting used in commercials, movies that are just on the radio all the time that you're just always surrounded by and and it's acdc they're just everywhere yeah yeah Yeah, for sure yeah definitely one of my favorite bands of all time yeah me too well it was so cool hanging out with you thank you so much for talking to me and thank you this was um, fun the uh the new book comes out um valentine's day pink floyd and dark side of the moon 50 years uh, a deep dive, uh, a lot of interesting stuff. I'm so glad you tackled the Wizard of Oz thing in there because it was a viral thing before viral was viral. And, you know, the legacy lives on is just one of the many things that make this album so special. So it was so cool to see you. Happy New Year. Yes, absolutely. You too. Yeah. Thank you for being fun. my first guest of 2023. Excellent. And I'm I'm sure I'll be running into eventually. Maybe all of the Pantheon podcasters will get together in person someday as opposed to just on those big, massive Zoom calls that we do every once in a while. Yeah, there was a thread of that a while ago. Something about someplace in Montana, even actually, for some reason. But then there's all always, uh, you know, rock and pod and those kinds of things. Yeah. Podcasts. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll make some trips for some of those. Yeah, we'll have point. a beer someday for sure. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks All right. again. No problem. It was good to see you. Thanks again. We'll okay. talk to you soon. See you later. There he is, author and podcast host, the one and only Martin Popoff. 
His new book is called Pink Floyd and the Dark Side of the Moon, 50 Years, and it's coming out on February 14th. You can get more details on Martin and all of his books. Just check the links in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find all of my links as well and the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that features all of the music that gets referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment info in just five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. You can join me every Tuesday night live on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, and you can always find me on the radio on the Mistress Carrie radio show. Get details on all of that and check out my concert calendar, blog, official online Mistress Carrie store, and so much more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.